Well, allow me to again say good morning as we've filled up since the last time I did so. So good morning again. As we come together, it is a beautiful thing that we can spend time in God's Word. But this morning is my first real opportunity to address you all from this pulpit since you voted as a congregation to call me as your senior pastor. I wanted to take a second to recognize this and thank you all. Um, My first official day as senior pastor is January 1st of next year, but our beloved Pastor Jim is getting the last three weeks of December as some much-needed vacation before entering his retirement. It's honestly been a tremendously humbling and daunting experience, this whole transition process. And the fact that you as a church have decided to trust me with this leadership means more than I can say. I'm only now really starting to come to realize that I'm filling the role that Jim has occupied for the last some 32 years. And almost none of our congregation have, at least at our church, experienced a pastoral transition. Um, So I ask for your grace as we try to work out what it will look like. And I'm very excited to see what God has in store for us as Elkhorn Baptist Church. I know for myself, I often shake my head when I look at the shoes I am to fill. Jim's ministry at this church, has, it speaks for itself, but the church that he has ministered to also speaks for him. And I pray that God will continue to keep me faithful in the calling I've received, and he would equip me to continue that pattern of faithfully preaching the word. And Lord willing, I pray that I might be blessed to retire from the senior pastorate here some decades from now as Jim did when he joined right around my age, 30-some-odd years ago. Again, thank you for your confidence, and I ask that you keep myself and our church in your prayers over the coming weeks and months as we transition. I also, before we dive into our scripture, I wanted to take a moment and acknowledge the, the loss that we've experienced here in this community. Many of you will already know that we lost a 15-year-old young man to suicide this week here in Elk Point, um, Zabin Pellick. His parents are Kyle Bleakley and Jordan Pellick. Uh, Kyle, many of you might recognize, is the guy driving a garbage truck around town. Um, Zabin never attended any of our youth or children's programs, so I didn't have the opportunity to, to get to know him. But I know that many within our congregation did know him well, and many within the school knew him well. I wanted to bring it up because this is a situation where we as a church are desperately needed to be the hands and feet of Christ. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And we as... Christians in our community can be the means by which God is brought near to a family that is broken beyond imagining. 
near to a family that is not close with God. I also encourage every family with children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or any contact with kids whatsoever to take whatever time is necessary to remind them of their responsibility before God to love others as they love themselves. Their responsibility to keep a careful watch on their tongues and their actions. Unfortunately, Zavin, from the sounds of it, was pretty severely bullied within the school. And this can serve as a wake-up call for us as family members and the students within our congregation to to be aware of what's being said and done. And to recognize that Christian students or students from Christian homes are not exempt from either the effects of bullying or from being bullies ourselves. We need to keep a close watch on what we say and what we do. And we're also taught to stand up for injustice when we see it. Our students should be taught to come to the aid of the weak and the powerless the bullied and the downtrodden, and most certainly to avoid being part of the problem. I ask that you would please be in prayer for the Pellick family and their extended family, and if you have an opportunity to reach out to them in whatever way possible. Like I said, they're not connected with a church or any church, and, but if you have personal connection with them, leverage that and spend some time just giving them the the love and concern that you would need in a similar situation, knowing that none of us are able to wrap our minds around what what they're going through right now. So, with all that being said, would you come with me to the Lord in prayer? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning knowing that you are God and you are good that you have gathered us together. You have planned our steps for today from before the creation of the world. And Lord, we thank you that we can trust in you and your sovereignty. There are many within our congregation and our community that are hurting or sick or even just downtrodden and tired, Lord. And Lord, we ask that you would be with us as a congregation, that we would band together to care for one another and to be salt and light in the community in which we live. Lord, we thank you for each one of these brothers and sisters here this morning, as well as those joining us online. We ask that, especially those joining online, that they would be able to feel the community of the church and know that each one of us here in person would love to see them in person here in church. And, Lord, that you would cause us to reach out to those that we don't see here around us this morning and check in and see how our brothers and sisters are doing. And, Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would apply it to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would be at work guiding and directing our thoughts, that we would not be distracted or torn away by anything else, but that we would focus in on your word and what it has to say. Lord, we commit these things to you, and we commit this service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So when I was considering a mini Christmas time series this year, I originally wasn't certain where to go. Um, it's easy to want to try and do something new and exciting for Christmas because, let's be honest, we all know kind of the Christmas routine. But also being honest, I'm not smart enough or original enough to come up with something that hasn't been done in the last 2,000 years since Christmas. So I haven't thought up of something new. But um, as I was thinking and praying about it, what I did think of was that we have four letters in our Bibles that detail the story of Christ's time here on earth. And that is what we're celebrating at Christmas. We've got the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then we have the Gospel of John. Well, in his kind of great swan song preaching series, Jim did amazing work walking us through the Gospel of John. And so to not steal off of that, I decided to look at the three synoptic Gospels, which, Lord willing, will take us to Boxing Day. So today we're going to look at the first passage from the book of Matthew. So if you want to be turning in your Bibles, we're starting in Matthew 1.1. Most of you, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 1.1, you will see a heading, something to the effect of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. When I told someone this Sunday we'd be focusing on the genealogy of Christ, I was met with a pretty standard response, a semi-sarcastic, the genealogy of Jesus, that should be interesting. The reality is, is that very, very few of us would identify the genealogies in Scripture as our all-time favorite passages. Very few of us would be like, yeah, I memorized the genealogy first before John 3.16 or anything else because I just love the, the history there. Oftentimes, they rank just above the list of numbers in the book of Numbers. Is it good information? Perhaps. Valuable? Certainly. But, but why is it valuable? Well, it must be because it's in the Bible, so it must be valuable. And God chose to put it there, so it's got to have some purpose. But that's often as far as many of us get. And in modern days, the focus on personal genealogies has fallen to kind of a niche hobby that keeps websites like Ancestry.com in business. But in the days when... Our scriptures were written, particularly among the Israelite people, genealogies were foundational. If you were an Israelite, the tribe that you descended from would have been core to your identity. Which tribe are you from? Which route did your family take through the history of Israel? So would you look at me with just the first verse of Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'm not going to try to butcher a whole bunch of names in a language that I'm not fluent in, but even just that title, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is rife with meaning. Matthew is a book that is particularly Jewish in its composition and also primarily in its audience. 
And so as such, he starts with kind of Jesus' pedigree. Even this section titled, The Book of the Genealogy, would have immediately keyed its Jewish readers into the fact that something important was being said here. Most of us would know that most devout Jews would have spent a great deal of time memorizing, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament, and directly translated this title, the book of the genealogy. It's an extremely uncommon phrase that becomes the record of the origins. And that same phrase is used at the beginning of Genesis 2-4, which says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This phrase would have stood out as a signpost that there's something going on here. And just like John in the book of John, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right away, Matthew is connecting Christ with the creation narrative. Jesus is being connected with this account in a little less of an obvious manner, but still enough that the original readers 100% would have kind of gotten what was coming on. And as they open their Gospels, both Matthew and Mark use that same full name and title combo, Jesus Christ. In the first verse, we often treat that like it's first and last name, but it's Jesus the Christ, the name and title. And in that, before even touching the genealogy, we learn something about our Lord. Jesus is not today, nor was it then, an uncommon name, but it was a name that was rife with meaning. Jesus being the Greek translation of the Jewish name Yeshua from which we get the modern name Joshua. This name literally means Yahweh is salvation. Hence why when Joseph is told by Gabriel to call his son's name Jesus, the reasoning given directly from Gabriel's mouth mouth is that he will save his people from their sins. Then the title Christ is applied to Jesus' given name. Normally, you would see a pedigree like this start by saying Jesus, son of Mary, or more commonly, Jesus, son of Joseph, identifying with their earthly parentage. But Jesus' earthly parentage is not the key identifier in Jesus' title. We'll get back to his lineage in very short order, but the primacy here is with the title. Jesus is much more than the Jewish man, the son of Jewish parents. He is the Jewish man who is also the Christ. And Christ is a direct Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Hebrew word being Messiah, which means anointed. So Yeshua the Messiah becomes Jesus the Christ in the Greek of the New Testament. But the meaning is the same. Yahweh is salvation, the anointed one appropriate for the one who would indeed prove to be the salvation of all mankind. This idea of a Messiah, a Christ, carried with it tremendous weight. To be anointed was to be chosen by God and empowered by God for a task and for a specific purpose. Priests were anointed 
to carry the responsibility of standing before God in the place of Israel. Kings were anointed to lead the country of Israel in God's place. And above them, there hung that expectation where the anointed one would come. It's also worth noting a tidbit that I found within the CSB study Bible. It said that Old Testament genealogies are consistently named after the earliest ancestor in the lineage because the Jews considered that person to be the most significant since everyone else kind of derived from them. That Matthew names his genealogy after Jesus, the final descendant in the lineage, implies that Jesus is more important than anyone who preceded him. So right away, the Jewish audience again in this wouldn't have missed that. If this is titled as the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew is claiming Christ's superiority over even two of the great celebrities of the Jewish people in King David and Abraham that we will talk about right here. And many of the specifics of who this anointed one was expected to be do stem from the two highlighted personalities from Jesus' lineage in our passage. He would be the son of David, the son of Abraham. To the original audiences, again, the identification of Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham would have spoken volumes. The Messiah was to be the fulfillment of all of God's promises to the people of Israel. As God's covenant people, Israel looked to the covenants that God made with them. The covenants like the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenants. And they used that to define how they related to God. Again, tweaking the standard format of this genealogy, Matthew places King David's name first, followed by Abraham, who was his forebear. And he's emphasizing the kingly promises found in the covenant that God made with David through the prophet Nathan, which we can see in 2 Samuel 7. Here God promises to establish one from David's line as a lasting king, as one whose throne would be established forever. The Lord promised that even if and indeed when David's descendants should fail, that he would not remove his favor from David's house. In verse 16, we hear God say to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So it should come as no surprise that the son of David was likely the primary qualification that would have come to mind when considering the promised Messiah. Even the tremendous failings of David's descendants, God through the prophet Isaiah reaffirmed this promise in Isaiah chapter 11 saying, There shall come forth from the shoot, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Remember that Israel was a conquered people. 
They longed for the fulfillment of God's promises, and in particular, the promised king that would come and liberate them and restore the dignity of God's chosen people. Even clear is Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9, which is a favorite Christmas passage. You'll hear it over and over again over the coming weeks. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice. And this is what they would, that is what Israel is desperately longing for. And this is what they would find in Christ if only they could see it. Based on God's covenant with David, we can discover two very important characteristics of our Lord. First is that he keeps his promises. The Israelites were never known for their enduring faithfulness. They were called out by God for their stiff-necked tendencies and their idolatry on many occasions. But God promised to David that he would indeed establish an everlasting kingdom through one of his descendants. Then, a thousand years later, Christ is born. Generations have passed, but the promise is kept. How much can we rejoice in the fact that our God does indeed keep the promises he makes to his people? Even when his people are so notoriously unfaithful to him. Each of us have experienced the disappointment of broken promises at one point or another, and that is not something we have to worry about with our God. His promises are more sure than anything else in the world. So the second thing we can learn about our Lord with the fulfillment of his promise to establish an everlasting kingdom through David we can know that Christ's kingdom is indeed eternal. The Jesus that we worship sits on the throne of a kingdom without end. He is and always will be and always has been ruling at the right hand of God the Father. To bring this down to a grossly oversimplified level, I am a huge fan of companies and products here on this earth, that their products come with a lifetime, no questions asked warranty. These are companies, companies that are confident that their product will stand up to the test of time. But I also check for the longevity of the company because there's no point in putting stock in a warranty of a company that's been around for six months. I like knowing that an established brand is willing to stand behind a product with a solid warranty. Our God stands behind the promises that he makes. But he has an eternal track record. From eternity past to eternity future, our God has been and always will be reliable in all of his promises. When we place our faith in Christ, we are trusting the one whose throne is from this time forth and forevermore. 
we read 1 Peter 1.25, there's a quote from Isaiah 40 that says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. But unfortunately, on that note, I have to burst our bubble a little bit. If Christ were only the son of David, most, if not all of us, would be out of luck still. Because I don't know of anyone here, I'm not going to make any assumptions, but I don't know of anyone here who is a devout ethnic Jew. This is where the son of Abraham comes in. The covenant that God made with Abraham was threefold. He promised Abraham that his line would have a land, that he would have many descendants, that he would be a blessing to all nations. You can find that promise in Genesis 12, 1-3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This final promise is reiterated in Genesis 22:18, where God again says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And if there's any misunderstanding about that singular connection between Christ and Abraham, Listen to Paul from Galatians 3.16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Being descended from Abraham, in Christ shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I don't think we often take the time necessary to recognize the danger of being outside of God's people. If you read much of the Old Testament, you can see what it meant meant to be God's people versus not. When Israel was faithful to the Lord, his blessing was on his people. But that did not necessarily mean good things for the surrounding nation with their idols and their wickedness. While Israel prospered, surrounding nations were conquered. Sin was cleansed by the sword. A select few peoples did receive some fringe benefits from their positive relationship with Israel, but those were secondary. When Israel prospered, it was not generally good news for anybody who wasn't Israel. And ultimately... If we are not counted among God's people, then it is not good news for us that God keeps his promises. It is not good news for us that Jesus reigns forever. And it is not good news that Jesus is the Christ. For unless we are expressly welcomed into the covenant that until Christ was reserved for Israel as God's chosen people, then we are left outside of God's provision and outside of his protection. 
And more terrifyingly, Scripture identifies us, if we are outside of the promise, as objects of his wrath. That is what's at stake at Christmas. The genealogy of Christ might seem relatively unimportant. The family that he was born into couldn't have God have made Jesus be born in any country, any country or any family that he wanted. Sure, he could have, but he chose to have him born into his people in Israel with covenants that he had in place with deep meaning. If Christ is not born in the line of David and Abraham, then the promises regarding his people, such as the one given to David and Abraham, don't apply. After his resurrection, Jesus goes and meets with his disciples. He's teaching them and he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations. This is Christ throwing open the floodgates as the promised Messiah who is the son of Abraham. He sends his disciples to share the glorious good news of the gospel with all nations. No longer is being a part of the people of God membership in God's people fenced by national or racial restrictions. In Christ, all who are called may come. They must only confess and believe and obey Him as their Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, even as I said last week during our Christmas program, while we enter this Christmas season, don't let your focus be drawn away. There are Christmas lights and there are fancy bows and there's Christmas shopping and Christmas baking and Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. But unless we have down what's at stake for real at Christmas, we've completely missed the point. That's why I wanted to touch on these opening words of the Gospels. They are books that are dedicated to the story that finds its opening act at Christmas. The story of how Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham, came and totally upended all of human history. The story of how God answered his promises from across all of eternity, not the least of which the promise he gave immediately after the fall. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This Christmas, remember that your Savior came and now occupies a throne that is without end. Remember that he is the rightful king, not only of this world in general, but very pointedly, he is the rightful ruler of your own heart and your own life. And please praise God that this king has welcomed you into his kingdom 
as a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham to bless the whole world through his offspring. If you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you no longer need to tremble in fear at the mighty king of a nation that is not your own. You instead can bow in reverence before the king who called you not only into his kingdom, but into his family. This is the joy that we know at Christmas. And this is the hope that we need to broadcast far and wide wherever we can. I gave one example early on this morning of a situation where there was no hope, and that ended in tragedy. There are so many in this congregation and this community that need that hope. We are so blessed in our church that we have people from Glendon to St. Paul to Vermilion to every corner of the lakeland. And these are people that are placed in places that need the gospel. They need that hope. Christmas and the days after Christmas are some of the darkest days for those who do not have hope. I couldn't buy the Christmas gifts I wanted for my family. I spent too much on the Christmas gifts that I wanted for my family, and now I have no idea how I'm going to pay it off. My family couldn't come and visit at Christmas. I mean, you're all living in COVID times. Loneliness is at an all-time high. How much more does that show up on the holidays? If the hope of Christ in Christmas is not there, the fleeting promises of this world's version of Christmas is not enough. There's a reason why depression and suicide spike around Christmas. Because there's only one good reason to be happy at Christmas. And that is to praise God that he invaded human history by sending his son to be born as a man, as a servant here on this earth, that he might live a perfect and sinless life that we all should have lived ourselves, and that he would die a sinner's death on a cross that he did not deserve, and that he would be raised again three days later and is now reigning at the right hand of God on high. That is our hope in Christmas, not in presents or anything else. And that is the hope that we need to broadcast far and wide at the time where people are probably the absolute most open to hearing about Jesus. Because you drive down the street, there's nativity scenes and Christmas plays and whatever else going on at all times. That's your chance. If you're waiting for a signpost of, hey, I should say something to my family member, my coworker, my friend, my whatever about Jesus, it's Christmas. You've got an opening. Take it. It is indeed good news that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew had it right when he opened his gospel by reminding us of who it was that he was writing about. Yahweh is salvation the anointed one. How will you individually and you as families worship the anointed one this Christmas?
Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be led astray this Christmas. That all of the other things that we are given and told to focus on would not cloud our vision for a second. But that what this world has to offer would pale in comparison to the gift that we were given in Christ that we celebrate here at Christmas. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for leaving us your word that we might know that story and we might believe in that story. I pray that you might use your church here at Elk Point Baptist Church to to share that with their friends and families and all that would listen, that you might add to your church by the good news. And Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you would watch over us and keep us safe. Use us as salt and light wherever you would take us. And may all things at Christmas cause us to turn towards you and bow down and worship you. That we might be motivated to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you. Not just be passive about our faith, but those of us who have trusted in you that we would be inspired to know more and to grow deeper in our relationship and our knowledge of you. And that wouldn't be just academic knowledge, but that it again would be put into practice. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I thank you for the opportunity that we're going to have to gather together with friends and families in the coming weeks. I pray for those among us for whom Christmas is going to be difficult. Those experiencing health difficulties or who are isolated at Christmas or for whom Christmas just holds all sorts of troublesome pieces of their past, Lord. There are many different reasons for us to be upset and frustrated and even depressed at Christmas if we take our eyes off of what you have done. So may our problems and our earthly pleasures all become small in the light of Christ. And I trust this congregation to you and ask that you would go with us this week. These things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, would you please stand and hear the benediction from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. Merry Christmas. God bless you. You're dismissed.